Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. Hello and welcome to episode number 14 of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about working. In this episode, we are going to explore the intersection of personal injury claims and workers' compensation, especially during a global health pandemic. This is an area where there are a lot of questions and very few people know the answers. I am often asked whether a person who was injured in connection with their work can file a legal claim outside of the workers' compensation system, and the questions have risen most recently in the context of the coronavirus. Since I don't know the answers, I thought it might be a good idea to invite an expert to the podcast to shed some light for our listeners. And so I reached out to my colleague, Austin LaPuma, to join us today. So, first of all, welcome, Austin, to Freaking Out About Work. Thank you, Randy. Very excited to be here. Before we dive into any substance, I doubt you knew this, but my favorite number in the entire world is number 14. So I hope that that is an auspicious start to this podcast and that it's also a good sign for the years to come. So why is uh, 14 your favorite number? Yeah, not necessarily related to personal injury work, thankfully, but 14 is my favorite number because my last name, LaPuma, just always so happened to be right in the middle of my class. So we worked by numbers. I, for many years in a row, was assigned 14 from that point on. I use it for everything. So I'm thrilled that this podcast also is a lucky number, LaPuma 14. I like it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Austin is a lawyer who concentrates on personal injury cases. Since its beginning, Austin's career has been exclusively focused on representing plaintiffs, and that is people who suffer serious injuries, and he does not represent the other side, the insurance companies. During law school, Austin clerked for Judge Patricia Oney in the Butler County Court of Common Pleas, served as an instructor with the Law and Leadership Institute focused on bettering education for students in underserved areas, and was a research assistant for one of my friends, Professor Emerita Mariana Bettman, where he assisted with the acclaimed blog called Legally Speaking Ohio. Both during and following law school, Austin continued to represent injured persons across a wide variety of circumstances. Austin LaPuma's focus ranges from dog bite victims to catastrophic trucking cases, and he has recovered millions of dollars on behalf of his clients along the way. His first chair trial experience has equipped him with the skill set to handle all sorts of things in the litigation process, depositions, mediations, hearings, and of course, jury trials. Austin is also a proud double graduate of the University of Cincinnati. He's a Bearcat where he earned both his undergraduate and law degrees. While an undergraduate student, Austin was heavily involved in UC's Mock Trial Association, where he was captain, vice president, and won multiple outstanding attorney awards. Austin took the experience in law school, where he became a member of the trial practice and moot court programs. And upon joining moot court, Austin achieved both best oral advocate and best overall score distinctions. Geez, this list goes on and on. I wrap it up. He went on to become executive director of the Moot Court Honor Board during his final year of law school, 
and he was also on the executive board of the student-run Freedom Center Journal, a mentor with the Student Legal Education Committee, and a member of the Alternative Dispute Resolution Club. Now in his spare time over the last eight years, Austin has acted as head coach for UC's nationally ranked Mock Trial Association. Austin, is there anything else we can say to pat you on your back, get your head a little bit bigger this morning? Yeah, no, I, I feel better than ever before in terms of my hubris level. So thank you, Randy. I think our job is done, you know. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Have, have we covered everything today? Wrap it on up. About that's Austin it, folks. Puma? You learned a lot. I feel great. 2020 is looking up. Perfect. Well, let's get to the substance. We're going to talk about personal injury claims during a pandemic and beyond and the intersection between personal injury law and workers' compensation law. So, Austin, let's start with the very basics. What is a personal injury claim? People hear about personal injury lawyers. What what does that really mean? Sure. Great question and a nice little softball after that introduction to hopefully keep the credibility alive. But the way that I view personal injury work as a foundation is the foundation is fault. So when you're assessing, hey, do I have a claim? You need to find who potentially is going to be the one that is at fault and who's Mm -hmm. responsible. In a moment, we're going to talk about exactly how that's distinguishable from a worker's compensation claim. So essentially, the central tenet of a personal injury claim is someone did something wrong or something did something wrong and I suffered harm. And I actually just had this discussion last night. You mentioned mock trial, shameless plug. It's a quasi-obsession. I really do fully subscribe to the fact that it taught me just as much, if not more, about how to be a trial attorney than perhaps any other experience in my life. But one thing that we talked about yesterday during Zoom class, which is something I'm still attempting to get accustomed to, was what a tort claim is. So inherently, when we say personal injury, often we toss around the word tort. And until we're so immersed in that world, most people aren't necessarily familiar. But like many things, when you hear it, you're just so accustomed to doing it. So a tort, real quickly, definitionally, all that means is a wrong. It's a harm to your reputation, a possession, or most commonly, your own physical well-being. Where does tort come from? Is that some kind of Latin term, French term, German word? I don't know. Well, I had one question that was going to be answered well. So number two, not so hot. I believe it's Latin. That's a fair bet, right? Because most words are. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm trying, you know what's funny? I'm having a vivid recollection to sitting down in Professor Bettman's tort class And my first note, I can see it because being the great professor she is, she started with that explanation. The problem is I see the word in my notes in my mind and nothing further. So, Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, workers' comp. Uh, So what's the difference between a workers' comp claim and a personal injury claim? Sure. So going back to when I mentioned the word fault, that is essential. When I'm talking to clients, especially nowadays, it it turns on who or what did something wrong from a personal injury perspective. Mm -hmm. Whereas when someone's hurt on the job at work, there's no requirement of fault. So the distinction really turns on, hey, there's an entire system, personal injury work, that is focused on who did something incorrectly. Bureau's of Workers' Compensation was established to the betterment, theoretically, for both the injured worker and employer, because there's not some sort of contentious who did what to whom. It was just created for essentially the greater good. And if someone is injured in their workplace under the scope of their employment, Mm -hmm. then they deserve to be rewarded as long as they prove that the injuries actually were related. Right. It's got to be at work, work work-related Even driving to and from work does not count normally, correct? That is correct. So 
we should go down that path as well because it is pretty common. That's a huge point that Randy just made. So if we're thinking about this, we have conventional personal injury claim, rear end collision, you're in your car, you get hurt. That is that. Then you have workers comp claim, you know, I hope it doesn't happen, Randy, but if I go back to the office, I brew some coffee and I slip on a puddle that someone left there, then that would be a conventional- that, that would be a worker's compensation claim. Correct. But this morning, let's say I'm on my way to the office and I get into a wreck, even if I'm a foot away from your office, yeah. that is not going to be a worker's compensation claim. The gray area comes into- and we don't need to go too far afield in it, is during the work day. So there might be something and using it in a professional experience where let's say I have to go file something manually in person. That doesn't happen that much these days, but- Yeah, you know, if you have to drive to the courthouse for some reason, maybe it's raining outside and you decide not to walk. Exactly. So if I am still with in the scope of my employment, a fancy way of saying, still on the clock, so to say, mm -hmm. and I sustain an injury, then typically that's viewed within the scope of a worker's compensation claim. Right. So uh, can a worker have a personal injury case if they're injured on the job? That is a great question. Oh, thank you. Man. It's one of my few. <laughs> you know, every once in a while, work on a good question. No, you, you put me on the spot with, the genesis of tort. That was a great question. There you go. Don't <laughs> so, want to let you off the hook too easily. Yeah, man. no. Keep me on my toes. It's Thursday morning here with us, but uh, I, I'm on 10. So there are two areas that are most common in my experience where a worker suffers an injury and the result is different based on if it's a PI claim or a worker's comp claim. So let's use a couple examples the most common one that occurs that still is a personal injury claim is the following. We're using a lot of examples, but let's keep using me and my poor butt trying to drive to work. If I was driving to file something and got injured by someone, mm -hmm. I still have a personal injury claim, a conventional one, against the person that hit me. Where it becomes a gray area is that if you're driving in your job, mm -hmm. you're a UPS driver. We value them more than ever before, right? Correct. Let's and hope those guys don't get hurt. We need Otherwise, them. we'll have nothing in the kitchen, we <laughs> nothing to wear, nothing to sit on. No ballots houses. to count. <laughs> so I heard some crazy statistic that, I don't know, is it 80% of things in our homes got to us by way of a truck? Oh. So when I get mad on the highway, the truckers, I should realize that they're pretty much furnishing my home and doing everything else. Yeah. And instead, if you decide to get a little too angry and speed up and accidentally cause harm to that driver, they probably have a claim against you in a personal injury way, but their treatment is probably through the Bureau for Workers' Compensation. So that's where a true intersection happens. If you hit a truck driver and they get hurt, even in my little Buick Encore, it can happen. Trust me, I've seen it before. And they have neck back injury, most common type of injury. Mm -hmm. If they're on the job, it's a standard practice where they have to get treatment through what's called the Bureau. And they have to go through a whole labyrinth of trying to get approval for certain treatment. I say this because it's important for potential injured persons in their job to do their best to get approval for treatment because at the end of the day, they still will have a claim against whoever hit them, but I still will need, or the attorney representing them will need, clear documented treatment and expenses, even though the bureau is the one that's funding it. Saying so double dip, they can get both workers' compensation benefits and um, potentially uh, money from an insurance company? Double dip in the sense that they do have an avenue of, depending on the severity of the injury, in the workers' comp claim being totally categorically separate from the personal injury claim, whereas I would handle the personal injury claim in the sense that they have it against a driver while they can mm -hmm. still have a viable workers' comp claim. What's important, and I, and I love the term you use with double dip because 
it's kind of a cliche go-to I say often to clients, but this is America. And one thing we know, there's no free money in this world. We know that very much. So the reality is in the most common cases I have, I'm, I'm thinking about a guy. Actually, he was a postal worker. It's, It's almost, it's almost too overwrought to talk about because it's the classic paradigm that you think this doesn't happen in real life. But imagine this, he's delivering one of the 80% of products in our home. Dog comes screaming out, bites him on the rear. (laughs) Big dog. Big dog. Big old, I think it was a German shepherd. And listen, I have two pities. I don't at all subscribe to dangerous breeds per se, but this was a sizable dog. Okay. It wasn't a chihuahua. He had a pretty significant injury. All of this gentleman's treatment was through the Bureau for Workers' Compensation. However, he had a claim against the dog owner from a personal injury perspective. The reason why I said there's no free money is that this is important, not just in the intersection of personal injury and workers' comp. Mm -hmm. It's important for, I believe, all potential claimants or my clients to understand, if someone paid towards your care, they're going to have to be paid back. So I say that because the Bureau is going to pay for your treatment. At the end of the day, whether it's a settlement, more than likely, or if we have to go all the way, swing for the fences and go to trial, mm-hmm. and that gentleman received an award, the Bureau is going to want their cut because they- They get their it. money back. They get their money back. So if you get go against a third party, part of whatever settlement happens has to be paid back to- the Workers' Compensation Bureau. Absolutely. I'm not going to comment on my own personal sentiment and if I agree, but the reality is that is what the law is. If the Bureau or really any other entity paid towards your treatment, then they're going to want their money back if you made money on the claim. And that's the way it works. Is there a term for that? (laughs) There is. And it's a term that I don't love saying, but I say it probably 200 times a day. Folks, subrogation. When you hear it, just know it's not fun for anyone involved. I promise you that. Right. When you hear subrogation, it's not good for you. When you're talking to your client, you start talking about subrogation. That means less money for the client because some money's got to go back to workers' comp, Medicare, Medicaid, I suppose, right? 100%. So going back to that example with the driver, what's convenient in the sense of how many moving parts there can be to any case is that when you get injured on the job, but someone caused your harm, like the UPS worker, mm-hmm. all the treatment goes through BWC, which is the Workers' Compensation Bureau. That makes it easier in the sense that we know the one entity, the third party, that's required to be paid back. Mm-hmm. The problem becomes who gets what. In other words, you want what's fair. We have this doctrine that's for better or worse, kind of been cut at called the make whole doctrine. And it's in the name. You want to try to make the person whole. In other words, try to return them to the moment prior to my poor client getting bit on the rear. And often with these subrogated parties, it's very difficult because everyone has their hand in the pot, Mm -hmm. including the bureau in that case that wanted their money back, which is understandable. I will say quick detour, to try to regain some credibility, I am aware of the genesis <laughs> of subrogation in the sense that it loosely translates to standing in the shoes. So that's how I explain it to clients, Randy, where if a client is perplexed and aggrieved, and many are, which I understand, I was hurt. I didn't do anything wrong. I deserve the compensation. The way I explain it is that's true. You do, but your medical expenses are separate from compensation for your pain and suffering. And the theory is that entity wouldn't have had to step into your shoes and pay for any of your treatment if no wrongdoing occurred. So they get their money back. You know, part of the trade-off with workers' compensation system, which you talked about it being no fault, but there's a cap on benefits, right? The weekly benefits are set. It may not be the total value of your claim. You know, you could suffer a very severe injury at work, and your benefits are limited. But if a third party caused the injury, you can go into the tort system and the personal injury claim and maybe get a fairer settlement. 
Absolutely. And another aspect to that too is that while generally, you know, 98% of the time, there is no separate claim against an employer. There are sometimes in some rules that permit an employee to have a personal injury claim at their place of employment. But to your point, it's very extraordinarily rigid and narrow as to when an employee has a viable personal injury claim against their employer. And a large part of that is because of that trade-off. The reality is the employee doesn't have to prove fault and they still get recovery. Right, which is good for most employees when just some relatively minor injury happens at work. They're going to get their medical treatment covered through the system. Exactly. It becomes problematic. It can even be their fault. Oh, yeah. You know, I I served in a little diner for five years. I had many minor injuries. I'm trying to think. All of them were self-inflicted, right? Right. I mean, from a burn to a slip and fall making a milkshake, I caused my harm because I was flying around trying to do too many things at once. I was at fault, but I went to the doctors that they paid for. Yeah. So in the workers' compensation system, it's no fault. You said that earlier. No fault on the part of the employer. No fault on the part of the employee. And you've said third party a few times in your examples. To have a personal injury claim, it has to be a third party. Does that include like a coworker? No. Okay. So a third party has to be someplace, somebody outside of the employer. That is correct. It has to be someone outside of the work environment. So think of your place of work as like one nucleus. That is the one body and you are bound by the rules inside of there, which are no fault, including anyone. Once you're outside of that, it's different. There are scenarios and I somewhat have been dancing around it, but it's extraordinarily narrow and doesn't happen all that often. But it started to percolate again with COVID because right now there's an issue with what are employers expected to do in terms of preventing transmission or harm to employees? And then how does that actually fold into workers' comp versus personal injury? Because generally, like we've talked about a few times, they're not going to be on the hook. But there is Ohio law that says if it's especially egregious, essentially recklessness, wantonness, willfulness, terms we'll get to in a little bit, that the employer did something that is truly pretty much outrageous, the employee has a potential claim directly against the employer in a personal injury capacity. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Now, people will be listening to this podcast years from now because this is going to be a bestseller of some sort, right? And hopefully the pandemic will be over. They can turn it off right here in 2028 when they're listening to this podcast. Again, hopefully the pandemic will be over. Uh, What if I contract coronavirus in the workplace? Do I have a personal injury claim? You do not have a personal injury claim. You do not. And Tell us about that. Why is that? Absolutely. And it this is all the more fitting because, shameless plug, I was truly appreciative of being invited because all of these elements about contracting COVID as an employee, transmitting it as an employer, just getting it if I was grocery shopping, all these unknowns and these confusing, really gut-wrenching aspects to it were unclear until basically, Randy, about a week ago when there was an official law signed uh, in Ohio. So I'm going to speak directly about Ohio law. This is Governor DeWine actually signed a bill last week. That is correct. Now we're recording this in late September 2020. So he signed that bill sometime mid-September. Correct. And when we're addressing the bill, another aspect to be aware of is that it's pretty fitting because from the timing of this podcast, late September, it's going to be in effect until the following year. This temporary bill or law, so to say, is in effect until September 30th, 2021, as of now. Now, listen, one thing we've learned, all of us collectively this year is don't hold your breath with any time promises here. All right. Mm -hmm. I gave up on that about May. I've had friends hold on for dear life till about now. So this is what I can tell you. 
as we sit here September 2020, that this is at least until September 2021. Who knows what we have in store? Correct. That law that was just signed was actually related to a blog post, so shameless plug. Uh, at the beginning of this, Randy and I were even talking prior to plans we may have had about professional and personal lives. One of them I did have a quasi dream was, all right, getting on the blog train. Oh, there's a dime a dozen. I had some thoughts going. What turned out to be most topical was a blog that I started about mid-June, mm-hmm. which is called, no, nothing too saucy. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know, the big buildup. It's a personal injury claims during a pandemic and beyond. So the thought is there's going to be the acute version that we're living through actively now through 2021. But listen, this is a, what my father would say, philosopher, professor, a gestalt shift, meaning this is going to alter our world in almost every facet after there's some sort of conclusion. One of them, I guarantee, will be the way we handle personal injury claims. And what we can talk about more narrowly in the immediate future is the example you just brought up. What if you know that you got, let's use a vanilla name, your coronavirus from Bob in the cubicle next to you? Mm-hmm. Do you have a claim? Like you got tested right as you were coming in the building and the test comes out, you're clean. You walk in, uh, Bob's coughing and sneezing. He's been tested. He's been positive and he transmits it to you and you, you can actually prove that. Thank yes, I that I love to hear. We 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 call this in the law stipulated. Yeah, and we're going to stipulate that you can prove Bob gave you coronavirus and Bob is your coworker. And folks, that's because Randy's a generous person. No one else would permit me just to run away with asserting that and saying that's great. So this is this is fantastic in the sense that hey, you know for a fact, and really all joking aside, it'd be difficult inherently to say, yep, I know for a fact this is it. But if a doctor, likely a pulmonologist, an internist, whomever, says, yes, I can tell you from a medical opinion, that's how Bob contracted this, then boom. Right. right? We know this is an unusual situation because it's going to be very hard to ever prove where anybody got COVID from, right? There's too many possible sources. Exactly. But let's just assume you did get it from Bob at work. So out the gate, it... What's easy about that scenario is that it does follow conventional personal injury claims in the sense that it was a coworker and he might have been culpable at fault. There's still no personal injury claim. Because it happened at workplace. It's a worker's comp claim. Boom. This is where it got tricky until last week where this law was signed into place, again, September 2020. There was huge battle. And I'm talking, you know, 300 Jar Butler's up there, Sparta battle in the Ohio House and Senate, because like many things, and it's no secret, we live in a pretty polarized society and there's talking points on both sides. But the reality is this largely in our modern day is unprecedented. So there was one ideology saying these frontline workers, these poor grocery clerks, UPS workers, mm-hmm. all of these types of people did not assume any sort of risk inherently to this degree. I have massive respect for those medical professionals involved, but inherently there's at least a, a quasi understanding that you're treating sick and or injured people. Right. What became dicey from everyone's perspective was, well, especially when we knew nil about this virus and Mm -hmm. we're running around in grocery stores with hazmat suits. What about the clerks? What about these poor people? Where's their protection? What do they have? Right. So that's all to say there was this epic struggle between how do we treat a proven claim that an employee contracted this virus in the workplace? And now the answer is, sorry about you, effectively. So uh, So the bill signed by Governor DeWine basically says sorry to the healthcare worker who contracts coronavirus at the hospital. That's correct. It's just hazard of the trade. And I say that because in previous iterations, you know, folks, think about the one of the best videos ever released 
schoolhouse rock, when a bill becomes a law, it's applicable on the state level too. You know, we, we hyper-focus on the federal government because we see all these big players and they're on right. CNN. It's just as important to understand that that happens on the state level too. Where yeah, we, we have McConnell and Pelosi we're hearing about all the time in Washington, D.C., but we got a bunch of big guns up in Columbus, Ohio that nobody really knows about. Right. Right. More often than not, I mean, <laughs> I'm probably just as guilty. You don't know your specific state rep, you know? Do you? No, don't quiz me right no. now. <laughs> I have no I, I have no idea. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I don't either, folks, but this is the point. They're making laws that impact us tremendously, but we often don't know. So long introduction to say what was originally floated was something I would have loved to see that's known as an occupational disease. So we knew out the gate that there wasn't going to be a conventional personal injury claim. That just wasn't going to happen against an employer. But there was hope and belief that, hey, the healthcare worker, the grocery store clerk, mm-hmm. whomever, that's showing up and showing out in a time where it is frightening, there's some mode of recovery. So in different versions of the bill, so Schoolhouse Rock, you know, this goes back and forth. I think there's a a common belief that Congress drafts one bill, they send it on up, they pass it, and that's signed. No, you know, think of anything that you write, like your 10th grade English paper. You know, I just phoned it in, but better students actually revised them. So there's a bunch of different iterations of a bill typically before it's signed by Governor DeWine Mm -hmm. into a bill. That happened with this. And I won't go down a beaten path, but it's it was House Bill 606. And as we mentioned, it was just signed. An original version of it included coronavirus as an occupational disease. If you were able to prove it like we talked about, you could have a conventional workers' comp claim. That actually was in one of the final versions until the Ohio Senate gutted that provision and it's silent. It does not exist. You mean you could have a conventional workers' compensation claim if you got it on the job? Correct. So well, what do you have? You have a rough recovery. That right right now where it stands, House Bill 606 signed into law is silent as to any rights whatsoever for an employee if they contract COVID on the job. Effectively, it's treated like any sort of other illness. If you got the flu from a coworker, Bob, if you got the cold from coworker, Bob, you take time off and hopefully regroup. It's problematic when we know that this is not those things. So that was what was signed into law, and that's where we stand as of today. Wow. Is, is, there, is there a route to recovery if the employer like flagrantly uh, violates uh, DeWine's mandates or other mandates surrounding COVID? Yes. So if we have people still engaged, which I'm hoping this is like, you know, we just had many intermission where your eyes might be glazed over. It gets saucy again because this is this is where it gets exciting. Just not that common. Right. You know, that happens yeah. to us more often than not where we have 500 cases and a lot of them are, quote unquote, routine. But then there are a few that just knock your socks off. And that's true in basically any profession. And it's still important to discuss because I just know anecdotally, and I'm sure you do too, Randy, of some, we'll call them bad employers that have been not just disregarding mandates and safety provisions, flagrantly mm-hmm. violating them. It's a 1% rule. 1% of the apples you get at the store are bad. 1% of employers, I think, are bad. 1% of supervisors are bad. It's the 1% that keep lawyers in business, I've always said. If you get rid of the 1%, we're out of business tomorrow. <laughs> right. It's the, it's the bad apples that keep us in business. And those bad so apples. let's talk about the bad apples and, and with those, COVID. When we have those bad apples, they turn into uh, – some fancier definitions. So the conduct we're talking about is a bad apple. When they engage in bad apple behavior, we call that typically recklessness. You know, mm-hmm. we, we toss that term around pretty casually in everyday speech. There's actually a definition. And prior to even, I think, this bill, there wasn't necessarily a codified definition. But if an employer is 
flagrantly disregarding the protocol when they should have the mask on, the boards up, whatever it is. The standard, though, is this, and I'm just going to read it aloud because I don't want to paraphrase when a law is a law. If they disregard a substantial and un- unjustifiable risk that the healthcare provider's conduct is likely to cause at the time of those services, treatment or care were rendered an unreasonable risk of injury, death, or loss to person or property. The term is often unreasonable, okay, folks? So the portion relating to recklessness also has different iterations, and we don't need to go into those in full detail, but what folks should be aware of if they're sensing their employers being really bad is does it seem intentional that's the that's the question that i've been posing to potential callers that are saying hey they're doing xyz so -hmm. there's proactive measures and then there's indifferent measures right if an employer is purposely subjecting you to transmitting or contracting the disease that's when we start talking about these terms, recklessness, willfulness, wantonness, right? If there was a guard up or someone brought in a mask and the employer said, take that off or don't wear that, or I'm taking that down, we start to teeter in that territory, you know? Like we hear about these incidents in grocery stores where people are getting in the fights, you know, take your mask off or put your mask on. You're talking about an employer who doesn't believe in the masks, maybe, Employee does. Employee walks into work one day and says, I'm going to wear this mask. And the boss says, take it off. And requires a person to take their mask off. And then that person actually gets coronavirus. That's a scenario where we are at least flirting with the possibility of a, a just a worker's comp claim. Yeah, so that seems like a pretty dumb thing for an employer to do, but there are dumb employers out there. Absolutely. And I, I truly have heard horror stories about employers in that exact scenario saying, take your mask off or don't talk to customer with your mask on. And when we reach that level, we need to look at if the employer's conduct is intentionally causing harm. And intentional doesn't have to be, I want you to get it. It mm-hmm. just has to be, I'm instructing you to do something so dang dumb that you could get it. Right. And that's where it becomes a a question because ordinarily that's still true in terms of if we circle all the way back, folks are still with us here to when I was talking about a personal injury claim against employer, that almost never happens. It can happen with the same standard when an employer is so flagrant that they intentionally cause harm, that's when you can save a personal injury claim directly against it. And, yeah, know. we talked about injuries at work, usually covered by workers' compensation, workers compensation system, but there are things called intentional torts in the workplace, right, that are not common, but they're still alive. Absolutely. And this is where, to tie it with corona, there may be, maybe an opening I'll be transparent in letting all the listeners know it would still be an uphill battle. But under Ohio law, there is a statute in place that says you may have a personal injury claim against your employer if they intended to cause you harm. All right, that's pretty rough. You know, most employers, like you said, aren't going to be that bad, but the 1% could, right? Was it like removing safety guards and things like that? That's exact. Randy's reading my mind, folks. So the other part of that is exactly Randy's point. There's another more common avenue in this rare occurrence where if an employer knowingly removes a safety guard or safety provision that was meant to protect the employee, then that's an avenue. So what we don't know, because everything is now in this arena with Mm -hmm. COVID, is what does that entail? I have a good faith belief that it's still rough because there have been court cases talking about what is a safety guard. And traditionally, I wish I knew more about construction work, but if you think about, let's just use a lawnmower. If you're a landscaper, okay? Okay. You have a souped up lawnmower given to you by your employer. And to make the work go quicker, 
they take off a guard of it, right? They mm-hmm. purposely remove something from the lawnmower, the safety guard, and then you slash your leg wide on open, six ways from Sunday, all yeah. right? In that narrow context, you have a viable personal injury claim under Ohio law. The employer knowingly and purposely removed a safety guard and you were harmed because of it. That can't happen. Typically, though, it has to be in relation to machinery or something on the job that's being used. Which yeah, is, I think that's how we think about it, right? Which I say that because what's different, what's novel about coronavirus is that employers are being forced to take proactive measures and erect certain barriers. You know, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about our office, which I appreciate immensely. Uh, we have our glass barriers up that are about, you know, seven, eight feet high to protect employees from surrounding viral emissions, potentially, that are spewed through air droplets. The point is, that is something that should be done. And it's excellent that good employers do that. But if an employer originally was conscious enough, had the foresight and the wherewithal to erect that and then remove it, that's different. Right. It's going to be tricky. When do they start removing those things? Right? How long is coronavirus going to be with us? Yeah, it's fascinating. Because, And then is that within the definition of removing a safety guard? Those are the types of questions that personally excite me, but I have a... I have a good faith belief that based on what we call, and I can't stand this term, but I'm using it, the spirit of the law, which just means, folks, the purpose of when a law is passed. The legislature, you know, for better or worse, as a collective body, has some sort of reasoning that they usually spell out in the law itself. And we call that the spirit or, or more likely legislative intent. And the intent when the legislature in Ohio passed this immunity bill was to grant immunity. Right. And we didn't hear much about this immunity bill, I don't think. It wasn't much in the press. It got overtaken by all the national news, right? Absolutely. I know McConnell's pushing it on the federal level. Hasn't gotten it done on the federal level, but here's an example. In Ohio, they got it done, right? They got it done. It is officially law, and that's why it's important, again, to emphasize, hey, on a local level, how does it impact me? Because it really can. Prior to just last week, I was fielding calls about you know potential claims that we might have had open, but the door's been effectively shut in the sense of, hey, I contracted this virus, and that's a real shame. And that's that was due to the passage of this this recent bill. So what is the path if you do have an intentional tort claim or even a personal injury claim? What are your options in pursuing a legal claim like that? Sure. So uh, there was one case, and I think it would be perhaps the one that is most applicable to those future cases we were talking about, Randy, with a potential removing of the guard, we'll call it. If they remove safety equipment... There was one really sad case, and I I can't pretend to know all the specifics about the exact machinery involved, but this poor employee was working on a line, and they had removed a guard on the line because it was a quicker process, and, you know, poor fellow loses his arm, just a catastrophic injury. So in that case, using that fact pattern, and then we'll talk about corona, the employee had a conventional workers' comp claim, just like we talked about. He was still injured on the job, no question at all, within the scope of his employment as he was on the line just trying to do what he's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. He wasn't at fault. More importantly, this is where the true intersection happens. Like we said, not all that common, but it can happen with those bad apples we referenced before where this employer, in their infinite wisdom, decided unilaterally to remove a protective measure of the device that was supposed to protect from that exact harm suffered. Those are what we call, you know, softballs. That don't happen much often. No, in our that doesn't field. happen very often. No, but they definitionally did everything in violation of what the Ohio law in place says that says there's a guard that's meant to prevent this type of harm. Don't remove it knowingly. 
they did that exact thing. So that's when it's easy. And luckily, I was able to use that as a case. More often than not, we, we know how life works and not everything is completely black and white ever. And I predict that to your point, which I actually love now, when will it be appropriate to start taking down measures? Does that mean we have to wait for an express order through the Department of Health from Governor DeWine? Is it, is it best judgment? I don't know. I don't know. So what are some of the takeaways people ought to, as, they're, as we're wrapping up this podcast, what are some takeaways from, from this podcast, from your perspective? Some takeaways are be aware of how important it is to be proactive about your own care. I say that because prior to this law that we've been talking about a decent amount, there was a question about, hey, well, I can just file a workers' comp claim potentially. It's an occupational disease. The point is, it's an overarching message for the year. Take all precautions necessary. With that said, a lot of what we do is actually intuitive in the sense of that's what the law is about, right? Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be. Supposed it, to be. it follows notions of what's fair and what's right. So what I, I, I'm happy to field all calls. What I tell all potential clients, because I, I hear this pretty often, even from friends that I've represented, oh, I don't know if it's worth it. Your life is worth it. Corny, but true. I don't care if you had one ER visit or if you are rendered a quadriplegic, your life has been impacted. So the point being, call an expert. Doesn't have to be mm. me, <laughs> self-serving, <laughs> but call in and say, hey, if, if there's smoke, there's likely fire. So that's a big point. In relation to employers, if something that you see is wrong, a lot of times, and you can corroborate this, there's a lot that's behind closed doors that's very wrong. So I always tell potential clients, if you're seeing some smoke, there's likely a fire behind the door, call in. Yeah, just call in, get some advice. It kind of plays into our next podcast, which is episode 15, which is called Know Your Rights. And Kara Daggett's going to come in and talk about why it's so important to know your rights. I mean, that's basically what you're saying is if you see some smoke, at least call somebody and find out what the law is, what an employer is supposed to do, what an employer can do legally, things like that, right? I think, yes. Now more than ever, it is incumbent upon all of us because of how new this territory is, is if you suffered some harm and you believe that someone may be at fault, or even if not, it was at work, what's it hurt you to pick up the phone and at least feel better for your peace of mind? You and I both have to say no a lot in our professional lives. And it's unfortunate because a law doesn't always comport with that fairness principle you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But I can promise you, I know for a fact that every caller and potential client that I've spoken with feels better just at least knowing. Exactly. Right. Even when you're telling them you don't have a claim, at least they've learned something about the law. So they ought to at least call in, get the advice. And I know you do free consultations uh, generally over the phone about personal injury matters. Uh, what about employers? Any advice to employers out there that's a takeaway from this? Because we've got some employers that are tuning in because they want to hear from an expert like you. They, <laughs> I assure you they don't like when they hear from me traditionally. <laughs> but in this context, uh, I would implore any prospective employer to use their best judgment, emphasizing the word best. And it's something from listening to this podcast that has been said time and time again. There's not just a legal duty, but a social contract duty to your employees to do what you can within reason to protect them. Additionally, and something that we talked about that is going to be a nice research project, if not for me, a law clerk in our office, I would err on the side of caution in the sense of timing. A lot of people are mentally over the virus itself. I see it. Even some of my friends have certainly expanded what they're willing to do with the risk assessment versus where we were at in May or June. However, it is still just as present 
as noxious, as deadly as it was in March. So employers, until there's a clear sign, and that probably would be a mandate similar to the ones that DeWine was signing in March, I would keep up those barriers. I would keep on those masks and keep hope alive. All right. That's outstanding. Well, Austin LaPuma, that was a lot to digest today. I hope none of our listeners suffer an illness or an injury, either on the job or on the roadways or anywhere else. But I always think it is a good idea to be armed with some knowledge just in case. So thanks for being with us today. And we hope that our listeners enjoyed hearing from you as much as I did. Hey, thank you all so much. I had a blast. And by all means, like we talked about the overarching theme, if there's smoke, there might be fire. Always feel free to give us a call, especially nowadays. One upswing between Zoom, Skype, Microsoft Teams. We have a million ways to skin a cat in terms of meeting and talking. So thank you so much, Randy. And it was a really fun time. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and will tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work, and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And Freaking Out About is all one word. Thank you, everyone.